Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into my top 10 June movies in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? For those who aren't entirely familiar with what these episodes are, these are the top 10 movies uh, that I saw for the first time in June of 2018. Uh, So, uh, really... Anything goes, um, as long as I hadn't seen it before June of 2018. So a couple of films that I rewatched this month that don't make the list uh, include the first Incredibles movie, uh, Mulan, Her, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Blade Runner 2049, um, uh, Inside Out, Snatch, uh, Rosemary's Baby, uh, Tropic Thunder, a lot of these could have been in contention, uh, but I'd seen them before, so yeah, it's not that's not what this is about. Uh, what this is about is uh, movies I saw for the first time, and uh, some of them I've actually already talked about uh, a bit, so I'm going to actually not include Incredibles 2 in this list, because... I've already I've already talked about it on multiple episodes of the podcast. So that one would have been my number one of this month, but uh, it's just not it's just not gonna be because I've talked about it a lot. There are others on this list that I have mentioned before, um, but I'll I'll try to go into a little bit more detail or or expand in one way or the other uh, because this is this is more about what I what I really like about these movies and why they've they've made this impression on me is kind of the whole point. So, that being said, let us jump in to the top 10 movies and start with number 10. At number 10 uh, is a movie that I saw June 16th, 2018. Uh, It is a 1945 movie. Uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and that is Spellbound. Spellbound. Uh, first time I got to see Spellbound, I've seen plenty, a lot of Hitchcock uh, in my time. Uh, this is actually I've seen twenty Hitchcock films now, and uh, Spellbound is is a very very good Hitchcock movie. Uh, my brief summary of the film. An amnesia patient is helped by a psychiatrist to recover his memory. Uh, the amnesia patient, played by Gregory Peck. The psychiatrist, played by Ingrid Bergman. Um, the film currently has an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. I gave it a 73. So, pretty good. Uh, not top-tier Hitchcock for me. And I don't know how well I can pinpoint the distinction there. But I think that a lot of... Uh, what what really holds the movie together for me and what I really loved about this movie were Bergman and Peck's characters. I thought they were well-written. I thought they were incredibly well-acted. Uh, specifically Bergman, I thought she did a fantastic job in this role, uh, especially, you know, it's 1945 when this movie comes out, um, which is a ver- like 73 years ago, very, very different time 
than today. And she's playing this leading role uh, as this confident, uh, very professional woman uh, who is in charge of herself. And uh, then you enter Peck, who initially is presented as her new superior. And then as the film kind of progresses and reveals and unravels itself, we learn that he's not the same, the person he says he is. He has his own mental problems, his amnesia, and so forth. And then the roles get switched, and Bergman is forced to be his superior. She's helping him. She's help, trying to help him figure out who he is and what happened and, and where things have come and what led to him uh, entering the psychiatric hospital pretending to be the new, uh, I think, manager, owner, um, whatever the, the correct term would be there. And so so from a, from a performance standpoint, from, from a character standpoint, I thought this was a very fantastic film. There are a lot of other aspects, though, that I was a little less impressed by, uh, specifically the plot. Um, the plot moves very, very slowly, which is not uh, abnormal for a Hitchcock movie. But in this one, it felt like the, the, the whole problem was that like for two-thirds of this movie, you know in the back of your mind that th- what we're driving toward is a revelation from Peck. Uh, you know, figuring out what happened to him and him realizing where things had been. And so for a lot, large portion of the movie, that's what we're just kind of waiting on. And it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen, and it doesn't happen. And Hitchcock is generally incredibly good at g- showing you something that you know is going to happen or you know has to happen and drawing it out and drawing it out and building up that suspense effectively so that when the thing does happen, when when whatever truth is revealed or, or turn is made, you don't feel like you've been waiting for it. And it doesn't it doesn't feel like you've been sort of plodding along and, and it's boring. And I think in this movie uh, unlike some of the others, he doesn't quite hit that mark perfectly. Uh, I think that as as strongly suspenseful as the movie is, I never really was able to get my head out of, okay, well, when is this going to happen? Okay, well, when is this going to happen? Okay, well, what, what are we waiting for? What's going Come on, when, when are we going get, to get to this, you know, finger snap moment for Peck? And, and it just... I, I don't know if maybe he just stretched it too thin this time or 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 what, but it really didn't work for me as well as most of his other movies had. Um, looking at the rest of his filmography, uh, Spellbound currently ends up as his 12th best movie. I mean, he was nominated for Best Director Award for this movie, but I put it... I have it as his 12th best. I have it behind... Uh, the 39 Steps, which is his my number 11 for him, and Ahead of the Lady Vanishes, which is my current 13. And I don't know, I, I really enjoyed Spellbound. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had issues with it. It has a 3.6 on Letterboxd, uh, so roughly about where I would have it if you translate that into a 100-point scale. But... I don't know. It's 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 very very good Hitchcock, but it's not great or incredible Hitchcock for me. So that's that's kind of where I'm at with it. 
So that's Spellbound. That's my number 10. Uh, I do highly recommend it. You know, Hitchcock is still one of the best directors going. And, you know, Spellbound is not a bad movie by any stretch. I think some of the tertiary characters in the movie uh, that aren't Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman, um, especially some of the ones that are kind of revealed to have been nefarious the whole time and, and so forth, don't get as n- enough of a smoking gun, uh, Chekhov's gun sort of setup as they should. And that struck me as well as I think, I, I don't know, I just, I felt like the, the overall writing of the film was a touch sloppier than, than uh, what Hitchcock normally uses. But um, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you're, you're kind of watching it for Bergman and Peck, though. I think they're, they're worth it. So, Spellbound, I gave it a 73. My number 10. Number 9 of June 2018 is a foreign language documentary. I watched it June 7th of 2018, and it is a 2013 film uh, that I gave a 74 to, and that is The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Directed by Mami Sunida, Kingdom of Dreams of Madness. Uh, My brief summary is behind the scenes of the great Studio Ghibli. Ghibli. Ghibli? Ghibli? And this kind of follows uh, Hayao Miyazaki and the other uh, employees and co-workers of his that worked at Studio Ghibli. Ghibli. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to say Ghibli. I'm just going to say Ghibli and let it be that. Um, and I believe they are working on um, The Wind Rises and uh, whatever movie came before The Wind Rises. Uh, what did he work on before that? I'm not sure. So I don't know. It, one, it, there's two movies that they they show a lot of detailed uh, work on, and one of them is The Wind Rises. Uh, the other one might not be Miyazaki's film; it might be somebody else's film that he had a hand in. But uh, that being said, um, the film goes pretty deep behind the scenes. You get to see a lot of Miyazaki addressing the animators and creators of these movies and uh, how he talks with them, how he addresses them. It's very personal and you really get a sense for uh, you know, what he loves and, and how he cares about every single facet of these movies that he makes. Uh, which I think is pretty apparent when you watch movies like Spirited Away and Ponyo and and, and My Neighbor Totoro and all of them. I think you can really see how much he loves these films that he's made. But it's a different thing to see the actual man uh, showing you those things in in person. Um, And, you know, he, he... he really wants to make these movies as magically real as he possibly can. And I think that really comes across in this film, in this documentary. You know, he... I I don't... I wish I had some examples, but he he really wants to... uh, He he really makes it a point to address every single element in the movies that you see. Every seemingly insignificant detail, even things that maybe look less like less time was spent on them in the animation room he you can be sure he had he put those those were at the forefront of his brain for at least a minute every single thing uh you know he 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 did not 
shirk on any of the deta- details. Nothing was made left insignificant. And he he really cares about every single thing that he worked on. But what was actually the most interesting element of this movie is you get to see the bigger picture in, in terms of Miyazaki. You get to see how he views the world. And I think it's very, very different from what he wants you to feel watching his films. Because for the, these films are, in my opinion, basically escapes from real world. And you get to kind of journey across the bridge and spirited away and experience this whole new reality, this whole new way of living and style that doesn't exist right now, you know, in Kiki's Delivery Service and Porco's, Porco Rosso, uh, you, you get all these different, all these changes from how the world is presented that, that elevated and, 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 um, just embellish and, and beautify what we imagine in everyday life. And, you know, you might consider that that, that the person making all these movies uh, is kind of a dreamer, you know, which I think is certainly true. You might think that, you know, this person has a particular, particular, particular love for animation and, and the, the, the limits that it might not even have. And I think that's also true. But, and, and, you know, maybe a more veteran eye, you know, picks up on this faster than I did. But you, I never really got the sense, and, and I'm sure that this is, you know, this, this might be something I would have come to had I spent more time with Miyazaki's films later in my movie watching history. You know, I watched most of these movies many, many years ago. But, uh, you know, this is a guy who finds the real world really, really problematic. And I think the biggest, best example of that is The Wind Rises. The Wind Rises is incredibly depressing. Um, one of his last movies that he's worked on, uh, it is very sad. It, it, it doesn't feel the same as some of the other films in his, in his oeuvre. And... He, he really, you get to see in this documentary, just, you know, these aren't movies that are for you, get, for everyone else to escape into. These are the movies he's escaping into. And that's such an interesting detail and, and really fascinating to, to watch because it's, you don't think of the, the, the mind that can create these brilliant, fantastical worlds to to be someone who feels any kind of loathing or or troubling feelings with uh with the real world you know he's he's embellishing and taking f- facets you know in in all of his movies that aren't pure fiction you know these are things that are rooted in reality they're just very fantastical versions of it and it, it, i don't know i just i just had such a fascinating um, fantastic experience, kind of delving deeper into Miyazaki's psyche, and and not just Miyazaki's psyche. You know, we we a lot of this movie is about Miyazaki, but but he is not the only person working at at Studio Ghibli, and we do get to experience other people as well, and, and different people he's had an influence on. So, 
I liked getting a peek behind the curtains. I liked learning more about who Miyazaki was as a person and and how you know it, it kind of hits you kind of uh, like a like a Robin Williams did. Uh, you know, the Robin Williams, hilarious comedian, brilliant actor, uh, someone who always seemed to have a smile on their face, um, even in the, the saddest movies. And, you know, then uh, he committed suicide. So you never really can tell on the outside. And I think Miyazaki kind of exhibits that exact same impression as well to a certain degree. So it was pretty pretty interesting to see where things come from and where they're headed for Miyazaki. So that's The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, a 74, my number nine in June. Uh, my number eight is a movie I've talked about a bit already. Uh, I watched this June 17th, 2018, the, the, a day after Spellbound. It is a 2017 film that um, kind of came out in 2018. Uh, I gave it a 74, so it's on par with Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. And that is First Reformed, directed by Paul Schrader, starring Ethan Hawke, Amanda Seyfried, and Cedric the Entertainer. Uh, it's my second Paul Schrader-directed film uh, after Affliction, and my fifth Paul Schrader-written film uh, alongside Last Temptation of Christ, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and Affliction. And I mentioned previously when I talked about it, you know, I wasn't, the, I didn't come out of this movie very impressed by it. I was kind of puzzled and, and unsure of where my opinions was, opinion was going to ultimately end up. But after some reflection, after some, you know, sort of reading up on the film and, and further contemplation, it did land as a pretty strong movie for me. And I, I really did appreciate it. I think I would enjoy it more on a, on a rewatch. And so, 74, that's where it ends up for me. Um, I don't put it in the same realm as Schrader's best work, at least as a writer. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think Taxi Driver is, is a far superior film for however similar they are. Uh, I, and the same thing for Raging Bull. And I think... I saw a lot of people kind of reference, you know, best his best film since Affliction, and at least as a director, he's not as successful as he was as a writer, which is is fair. But I think for me, like Affliction for me is just kind of okay, and this is actually strong, positive, good. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I, I like First Reformed. I think it's a very good movie. It features a very, very strong central performance from Ethan Hawke, one of his best. And if this does end up playing a role in uh, the Oscars this year, uh, great. Uh, I think that's great for, especially you know, if it's Ethan Hawke, I, I totally respect that decision. Like I said, it's a 2017 movie for me though, so it, you know it won't play into Circle of Film Awards whatsoever. So first reformed. Uh, you know, I, I did an episode featuring that movie already. You can go back and listen to that. But that is my number eight of June. My number seven is another documentary on this list that I saw June 8th. So the day after Kingdom of Dreams and Madness. Uh, it is a 2018 film that I gave a 75 to. And that is Won't You Be My Neighbor? 
the Fred Rogers documentary. Fred Rogers, who uh, is is actually a very important person in Pittsburgh, where I'm from. Uh, he did most of um, Mr. Rogers here, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood here, and and filmed a lot of it here. And I live here, so uh, it's you know it's been playing at one of my local theaters for like two months now, or or however long since it first expanded to like more than a. 50 theaters it's been here the whole time uh we've seen i've seen a lot of movies come and go at that theater and won't you be my neighbor is still there and it's still you know selling all the tickets um you know there have been a lot of you know stories about mr rogers and who he is behind the camera or in front you know behind the cameras and and who what, what he really is like and it's it's so surreal that he's the same, you know. A lot of people you learn that they're very different from who they pretend to be, uh, you know, and that's not the case here. You know, he he is very much the character he plays in Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. He is very much this down to earth, very simple, friendly person, and. That is so refreshing. Uh, you know, he didn't, he never felt like he had to change who he was to entertain and to educate. And that is a very, very important um, lesson. You know, you certainly, there are plenty of people who, who have, who are in a position that he, like he is now, uh, who are, you know, in, in kids' entertainment and kids' education one way or the other, uh, who do change themselves, who do put on a, a, a mask of sorts, and are still successful, you know, that's not, not to say that, you know, what he did was the right way to do it, but, you know, he was doing things, you know, decades ago, that were radical, and revolutionary, and endlessly praiseworthy, and so, Won't You Be My Neighbor is just a depiction of that, of how it started, of how it continued, how it ended, uh, who he is as a human being, as a person, as Mr. Rogers, as part of the neighborhood, and it's it's just very, very special and very, very poignant and meaningful and, and beautiful as a tribute to who he is. Uh, I, I had a great time watching this movie. It's very emotional. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, why it doesn't get a, maybe a higher rating is because, I mean, it's it's a very simple, straightforward documentary. I, I don't feel like you come away with from this movie having... Like, the, the format doesn't change anything. It's, it's very much just talking heads and old clips of... of Fred and and who he is. It doesn't try to break new ground either. Uh, at least even even with its subject matter, which is also very straightforward. You know, this isn't like a gotcha type of movie where it's going to show you something that just totally knocks you on your ass regarding Mister Rogers. It's just not like that, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I don't. Again, I don't think we needed that from this movie at all, but. At, at the same time, you know, when your movie is very straightforward and matter-of-fact, 
um, that's very simple. And documentaries that are very simple, I don't know, it's just very, very by the numbers in that sense. So that's probably, that's the biggest reason why it doesn't get a, maybe a higher rating. I, I wish, there, there's parts of this movie where they really dive into the social commentary and the social issues and, and thing like things like that. And they really talk to other people about how Fred approached things like that and what he did to uh, really improve the the mindset and uh, approach that kids would take to these sorts of things. And I wish they'd spend a little more time on the, that, that sort of thing. I wish they'd spend a little more time trying to, to, I don't know, dive deeper into what what Fred actually thought, uh, I guess, is is my desire. We get what he wants to teach. We get what he wants everyone else to feel and how he feels and, and what means the most to him and in his relationship with the kids and things like that. But, you know, in the trailer, there's a moment where he, where they they talk about, you know, when he had, um, oh, what's his name? He has his, um, the, the post, the postman that visits him in the show, who is a black man, uh, he shares, a, like, a foot pool with him, and, which is a big deal, which is a huge deal, but, and we get that from him at, you know, just in the show and, and things like that. But I wish, I wish we could hear more words directly from him outside of the show. I think that was one of the things I was missing. And there are a couple of other parts of the movie where I, I really, really wish we'd had that because we only have sort of anecdotal references from other people about certain things. And I, I won't go into those. Those are kind of the only sort of spoilery parts of this movie, the things that I wasn't, I, I wouldn't have known without this. So, yeah, there, there are definitely parts where I wish we'd gotten more words from him specifically, but uh, I, I'm sure uh, that wasn't possible. So, yeah, Won't You Be My Neighbor, very, very good documentary. I, I've heard a lot of people already saying that it's going to be if not win, nominated for Best Documentary this year. I totally see it with, with the reaction, with the response, with how much money it's making and, and all that. It's it's certainly a worthwhile biopic. Worthwhile biopic. That is my number seven. And uh, with a 75, won't you be my neighbor? Moving on to number six. I saw it June 5th, 2018, uh, the earliest film of the month that uh, made the top 10. It is a 2017 film for me, maybe a 2018 film for a lot of other people. Uh, I gave this a 77, and that is Beast. Beast, a uh, very, I don't know, probably lesser known movie uh, that came out, came out in the U.S. earlier this year, uh, but got some earlier release dates, uh, and... I am very impressed by this movie. It is, in my summary, an isolated woman finds comfort in the arms of a man her family warns her against. So, early on in this film, we meet Jessie Buckley, who is absolutely incredible in this movie. She gives a fantastic performance. 
and she has a lot of problems. She is very, very emotional and aggressive and uh, lives under the rule of Geraldine James's character, who is her mother, and she is ruthless and mean, and the most of her family doesn't really treat Jesse Buckley's character, Maul, very well. Until she meets Johnny Flynn, Pascal. Uh, and, and Johnny Flynn is exactly the wrong kind of person for her, according to her mother. He is everything her family despises. You know, her family are very well-to-do, very upscale. He is not. He is grimier, he is dirtier, and that in and of itself is is fairly straightforward. But he is also um, being investigated for a series of brutal murders. Uh, and that is a whole other dynamic to this movie that pushes it over the top for me. And I don't want to get too mu- too bogged down into into the plot because I think that there's a lot to discover in the plot that is worth finding out as you see the movie. But suffice to say, uh, the ending and where this movie chooses to go, I really, really appreciated. Uh, it definitely tries to swerve you a few times. And the best swerves are the ones where you're happy with where the film thinks it's going. or where the film gets you to think it's going, and then it takes you to a place that's even better. Those are the best swerves. This movie, for me, has that, and I was very, very entertained, very, very impressed, and and overall very pleased with where this movie goes, the performances. You know, Johnny Flynn, the the male lead in the movie, fine. He's serviceable. Jesse Buckley knocks it out of the park. She is incredible and um that's it that's all you really need to know uh i I really recommend it supposedly it is on netflix but it's not it's it's a lie it's a deceit letterboxd is lying so uh if you can find this i really recommend it it's a very very it's a very short movie it's only about 100 minutes so it's not gonna break any break the 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 bank day it's not gonna kill you to watch it but i really really liked it and uh, i'm really looking forward to more films with jesse buckley in them because i love i loved her in this and yeah she's going to be in the new dr doolittle movie with robert downey jr and she is playing we don't know so um beast just beast and uh that's that's it it's it's very loosely a a beauty and the beast variation very loosely there are definitely connections you can make between the plots but uh it goes it takes a lot of different turns from from the original beauty and the beast stories even even the more dark stories it takes takes different turns so that's Beast. I don't want to say too much more about it um, and, and spoil anything because I really think going in, knowing as little as possible is uh, the best prescription for this movie. So that's Beast, my number six uh, in June that I gave a 77. 
Moving on to my number five, the top half of the list. We have a film from 1978 uh, that I saw on June 20th, 2018. Uh, it is a very short film, uh, short feature film at just 89 minutes. And my summary is a getaway driver is the target of a tenacious detective. And the movie is called The Driver. Uh, it is directed by Walter Hill. It stars Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Dern, Isabella Johnny, Roni Blackley, and Matt Clark, among others. This is one of the movies cited as an influence on Ryan Gosling's Drive. It's very obvious that that is the case. Uh, Walter Hill, who directed the film, also directed The Warriors, as well as Streets of Fire and Eddie Murphy's 48 Hours. Um, looking through... only one I've seen is The Warriors, but he has made some notable films, Walter Hill. And the driver, uh, Ryan O'Neill plays the driver Bruce Dern with some real, a real curly fro, plays uh, the detective. The characters, none of them have real names. You know, Ryan O'Neill is credited as the driver, Bruce Dern, the detective, Isabella Johnny, the player, Roni Blackley, the connection, etc., etc. And Ryan O'Neill has had a very strange career. Um, this is just the fifth film of his I've seen in. I love, love, love Paper Moon. I love Barry Lyndon. I've really enjoyed this. So I've mostly just seen good movies that he's been in, uh, as it turns out. But from my experience uh, in t learning what people think of Ryan O'Neill, most people don't like Ryan O'Neill uh, as an actor. But he kind of comes off as maybe a discount Ryan Gosling. I think he, he pulls off the sort of stoic Gosling roles that Gosling does so well. Uh, Ryan O'Neill does them very well as, as, as well. And it's, it's really just a movie that kind of languishes and eases into um, this world that it's created. And it, it does so brilliantly beautifully uh you get this real kind of uh cat and mouse game between dern and o'neill and you know from the very onset you know bruce dern knows exactly who he's after but he just gotta catch him he just has to catch him and that is exciting enticing uh you know and then all the other sort of players and, and characters outside of dern and o'neill play their roles well they embellish the story they add to it they give it dimensions that it needs and i know it's very very fun very very enjoyable film uh it's fantastic a, a, just a very good thriller and uh walter hill stylizes it enough there's a really fantastic sequence in a warehouse uh with um ryan o'neill in his car uh some bad guys in their car driving through this warehouse looking for and like kind of you know hide and seeking with each other and like that was such that was such a fan that was such a great scene i, I really was impressed with with how because i don't know you think you're in a car it's gonna make noise especially in the 70s you know there weren't 
you know, silent electric kind of cars in, in, in the 70s. And, you know, they're just driving these big, these big steel vehicles that, you know, rev up and, and make all these all this noise. And so that seems like it would be really easy to catch somebody when they're making all that noise. And it's not. It's, it's very, very suspenseful. And I was a big fan. Big fan of this movie. Really liked it. I gave it a 78. And there's not much you can spoil. You know, you kind of know what's going to happen. But... I think this path to get there is is a lot of fun, and yeah, it, it's it's good stuff. It's it's really good stuff. So that is my number five, The Driver from 1978. I gave it a 78. Walter Hill, Ryan O'Neill, Bruce Dern. Number five in June. Go see it, The Driver. Very very good. Moving on to my number four, which I also gave a 78, same as The Driver. This one I saw June 15th. Uh, it is on the longer side, over two hours long. It is a 2013 movie. My summary, a film crew ends up in the middle of a Yakuza feud. Yes, and it's called Why Don't You Play in Hell? It is a foreign language film directed by Sion Sono. If you don't know who that is, he directed... A couple of other movies, like Love Exposure, uh, Tokyo Tribe, Suicide Club, Anti-Porno, um, a lot of movies. He has 46 credits on Letterboxd. He is, uh, he is, I'm quoting, been called the most subversive filmmaker working in Japanese cinema today. I watched Love Exposure a while back. I've talked about it on the episode, on the podcast. I'm Big, big fan of Love Exposure. I really loved it. So I'm really excited to venture deeper into Sion Sono's work. The next movie I watched after Love Exposure was Tokyo Tribe. And it kind of very lukewarm on Tokyo Tribe. Why Don't You Play in Hell reinvigorates my, my excitement for Sion Sono. And it plays like a hybrid of, of Bowfinger and, uh, I don't know, like, I'm trying to think of, like, the other side. It could be, like, Bowfinger and and Galaxy Quest, kind of. You end up with this film crew, this fledgling film crew, who want to film a real Yakuza fight. And so they go to... uh, There's this... An actress who wants to be... I think they want to put in their movie, or or maybe wants to be in their movie, or however the situation uh, demands. And she is the daughter of a Yakuza boss. And so the Yakuza boss is currently in a feud with another Yakuza group. And they're going to go to war with each other, inevitably. And the filmmaker and the fil- and his crew convince both sides to let them film it. And so it's this surreal, ridiculous scenario where you're watching... You're watching these this crew film the fight between these yakuza, and they they are they're they're actually killing each other on camera, but they're also doing it for the camera. So they're you know you've got the guy the director and the filmmaker like calling out directions during the fight during this war where actual people are dying, and it is so fascinating so 
brilliantly conceived, and I, I love it so much. You know, it's, again, it does not reach the heights of love exposure for me, but this was a really, really fun movie, and I had so much, I, I really enjoyed it. It, it just, it just, I don't know, it, 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 it just completely subverts filmmaking in a way that you haven't seen before. It's an, it's absolutely a live-action anime in the best possible way. It it hits on so many different things, and it's it's so funny. And, you know, humor is very tough, I think, to translate from one language to another. And Sion Sono, uh, to his credit, is one of has one of the best comedy styles of, of a non-English speaker that I've ever seen, for me at least. So, I'm a huge fan. You know, this is definitely a better introduction to Sion Sono's work than Love Exposure would be. Uh, if you haven't seen anything he's done. It's a lot more mainstream than Love Exposure and uh, easier to swallow. So that's what I would recommend if you want to check out his movies. It, yeah, it, it's 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 really quite fascinating. And I don't know. It, it's it's I don't know what else I could say about it. it it's it's very genre bending, genre defying and fascinating. Why don't you play in hell? Question mark. Uh, my number four from June 78, 2013 movie. Great. Awesome. Let's move on to number three, uh, which is the, a short film, an actual short film. Uh, it clocks in at 12 minutes long. I saw it June 16th, which is the same day as I saw, as, that I saw Spellbound. And it is an animated film from 2005. That I gave an 81, so we've broken into the 80 score, 80 rating barrier uh, with the summary, The Evolution of Earth. I actually watched it twice. I watched it back-to-back uh, when I viewed it. It is directed by Don Hertzfeld, and it is titled The Meaning of Life. And it, it's on YouTube. You can check it out on YouTube if you're familiar with Don Hertzfeld. Uh... And, and, and his work, it really, it's not going to show you, I mean, it's not going to be uh, anything different from a lot of the other things he's done, as far as style, but and as far as subject matter, it is, I mean, he, he just, he, he knows no limits. You know, the director and creator of World of Tomorrow, 1 and 2, It's Such a Beautiful Day, um, Rejected, and so many other great films that he's made. The Meaning of Life fits into that uh, filmography. And so... I don't know. It, it, all of Hertzfeld's films, I really feel... ask you and encourage you and almost demand that you watch them more than once. And Meaning of Life is no different. Uh, at just 12 minutes long... He he uses br beautiful music and fantastic imagery to show you everything. It's it's in incomprehensible. It's everything. You see so many things of where the world, where humans and the world have been, where they could be going or likely are going, where they are now, uh, and he does it in such a 
fasc fascinating and critical way that it makes you laugh, it makes you get almost cry, it makes it really is uh, tough to come away from from this movie uh, not I don't know worried and and concerned, but impressed and and just just altogether uh, shaken, uh, kind of. And you know his animation is so beautiful, and I don't know. There's there's not a lot I can really talk about because it's so short, <clears throat> but. Some of the some of the imagery that he uses, just zooming in and out of the world and and looking at these characters and creatures and people, and and sort of listening to their condensed gibberish and what it actually says and and what they're saying by it, uh, you know, you know, is there is there meaning of life? You know, that's kind of the question. Is is there more to this than what we have and and what else would it be and it's it's an inscrutable uh uh in in indecipherable kind of movie and that's kind of hurts felt to a t really uh, you know it's it's very ambitious and just look at just check it out it's only it's only like 12 minutes you know maybe watch it twice three times four times uh yeah, it just tacks on another fantastic film for Don Hertzfeld, and one that resonated with me, resonated with me, as most of his films do. So, The Evolution of the Earth in the Meaning of Life by Don Hertzfeld. I gave it an 81, the only short film on this month's list, uh, the only animated film on this month's list, as it turns out. So, The Meaning of Life, that's it. That puts us at number two already. This is a film I have touched on and talked about, and that is American Animals. I watched it June 23rd. My summary, four young men decide to perform a heist. I rated it an 83. It is one of my... It is nominated for multiple Circle of Film Awards at the present time, uh, including Best Picture, Director, two supporting nominations, Screenplay, and Special Effects. Uh, American Animals, I really, really enjoy it. I think it's a great sort of sort of subversive documentary heist hybrid, um, very much like Itania in a way, very much like uh, The Imposter, which was um, Bart Layton's first film that I ever saw, and first film that he ever made, and and it's it's a worthy, worthy follow up and. You know, I think if you take it, I don't know, I've seen, I've definitely seen some dissenting re uh, reviews and opinions on the movie, and I, I totally respect that they, they have problems with it, I think the movie does have problems, it's not a 100, but I don't know, I don't know, I just, I was so into it, and so behind, and so supportive of what this movie was trying to do, and coming from, and, and how subjective it was trying to be, and, and you know, it builds up and builds up and builds up to this point and kind of drops you off a cliff, which I loved. And I don't know, I, I thought it does, does a fantastic job of telling the story it was trying to tell. So, 
American Animals, talked about it a lot. Won't, don't need to go into too much more detail about it. I'm a big fan. Check it out. It's in... I don't know if it's still in theaters anymore. Maybe it is. If it is, check it out. Check it out. It'll be a, it'll be available soon. Check it out. Gave it an 83. That is my number two. And let us move into my number one, which is another movie I've already talked about on the ep- on the show. Uh, I watched it June 13th. It is a 2018 film that I gave an 85 to. And that is Jennifer Fox's The Tale, uh, starring Laura Dern, released by HBO. So I don't think it's even, like, qualifying for, like, the Oscars and things like that. It fits in the Emmys, which is a shame, because I think it could have a really successful year at the Oscars and Golden and, and things like that. But for me, it's still a movie, and a very great movie at that. It is very similar in a lot of, in some ways, to American Animals, in that it sort of approaches its story from a documentary point of view. Uh, the main character is a documentarian. It is directed by a documentarian. Laura Dern plays the director in the movie. It is a fictionalized version of the director's life. Uh, how fictionalized? I'm not sure. This, my summary: A woman investigates the circumstances around her first sexual relationship. I highly highly recommend this movie um similarly to uh, american animals multiple nominations including picture director lead supporting screenplay and scene it really shook me watching this movie it is very very well made very well acted and very very disturbing heartbreaking and uh dramatic in a lot of a lot of its moments Um, it plays with the documentary format in a way that i'd never seen before in a way that i was very impressed by and uh gives me like i'm i'm really on board with jennifer fox i can't wait to see more of her work going forward and to check out some of her older stuff uh she's made a couple of movies before this i'm really looking forward to them um this movie Showcases a lot of lesser names in it, like Jason Ritter, kind of a name, but really proves his own in this movie. Elizabeth Debicki as well, kind of comes out of nowhere, and not nowhere, but like comes out of like C-list acting uh, level, and, and really showcases her talents. Elizabeth, Isabel Nelis, who plays the younger version of Laura Dern in this movie, is fantastic, uh, Common is in this movie. Common kind of somehow turning into this decent film star after John Wick 2. Um, his music in glory, he's really become kind of a name in this industry too. So I really love the tale. Uh, really, really love the tale. And I hope more people will see it because I think it deserves to be seen. It tells a very fascinating story about uh, a very troubled person who experiences something that I think we all experience you know kind of the hitch of this movie is that she doesn't really remember her childhood the way that it was and she's learning how everyone else depicted her childhood uh, and and how that that time has really eroded her memory in this sense and I think we all experience that to some degree we all remember our childhood probably 
either much better or much worse than it actually was. Uh, And, you know, like going on a journey like this, even if there isn't a very pivotal uh, experience that you're trying to uncover, would still be a fascinating journey. And Jennifer Fox, along with Laura Dern, do a a great job of of showing us that, that that's a journey worth taking. So my number one new movie from June asterisk the incredibles 2 or incredibles 2 but the tale it's the tale it's the tale so back back through the list my top 10 movies from June that I saw for the first time spellbound the kingdom of dreams and madness first reformed won't you be my neighbor beast the driver why don't you play in hell the meaning of life american animals and the tale that's it those are the 10 those are the 10 no one even mentioned Incredibles 2, not once. All right, that all having been said, uh, I realized that we're already deep into July, so like two weeks from now, we'll be getting the July episode of this. Fine, that is great. Um, yeah, a couple other June stats here. I watched 158 different films in June. Uh, it was kind of a low month, uh, what with the vacation kind of eating into it a bit. The average release year of all these films uh, was actually a little higher than normal. It was 2008 almost, uh, which is very, very high. Didn't get a chance to go back into the back backwards in years as much as I would have liked. But all in all, uh, a great month of movies. You know, a lot of the movies I mentioned earlier that I had seen before June that I watched the second time are fantastic. Logo Rama, Raiders, Blade Runner, Kung Fury, Mulan, Inside Out, The Incredibles, Her. Fantastic films. A lot of them in my top 300. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Looking forward to July. Um, there are quite a few films in July already good movies that I've seen and uh, that's with like 20 movies left that I haven't even recorded from July that I've seen because I'm still recovering from my second vacation Uh, so yeah top 10 movies of June good month strong month and looking forward to the next one thank you for listening to today's episode If you would like to check out more episodes and more stuff about me, about the show, about whatever, head over to circleoffilm.com for all that and more. If you would like to get in touch with me for any reason whatsoever, find me on Twitter at circleoffilm or through email, circleoffilm at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the show in any way, shape, or form, you can do that monetarily for as little as eight cents an episode on patreon.com slash circleoffilm. Thank you so much for listening once more and as always have a week so long farewell i'll be the same night i know she'll never leave me even as she fades from view so long farewell i'll be the same Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So long.